the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with Justin Martin, who is president of Myatt and Bell PC. They're estate attorneys. They specialize in estate planning. They've been around since 1960. We'll let you know what they do. They're advertisers on one of our stations, one of the cluster of uh, Salem stations in our market. We want to make sure you know who supports uh, Christian Radio and the other stations in our cluster and how you can uh, support them, how they can help you. So that's coming up uh, on our second segment today. Also, we'll hear our classic interview with Rebecca Friedlander. She's the author of Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. That will be in our 5 o'clock hour. Well, from my perspective, the top news story of the day A judge has found Oregon's uh, governor's coronavirus restrictions on religious gatherings null and void. Yes, you heard me correctly. The governor is seeking the uh, state Supreme Court to review that decision. But a Baker um, County judge on Monday granted 10 churches who sued the governor a preliminary injunction, finding Governor Kate Brown's restrictions on religious gatherings null and void because her emergency order due to the coronavirus pandemic had exceeded its 28-day limit. Now, Circuit Judge Matthew Shirtcliffe, he found the plaintiffs had shown irreparable harm from the deprivation of the right to exercise their religions. The governor's orders are not required for public safety when plaintiffs can continue to utilize social distancing and safety protocols at larger gatherings involving spiritual worship, he ruled. He found that the churches can take necessary social distancing precautions, just as grocery stores and other essential businesses have done. And he also ruled that the injunction was in the public's interest, allowing people the right to freely worship and the ability to restore economic viability. This court understands that the current pandemic creates an unprecedented crisis in the state as well as in our county, a rather country, Shirtcliffe said, speaking from the bench in a video conference hearing. That's how they do it these days. He said that he must protect public health concerns against the constitutional right of freedom of worship. Attorney Mark Abrams urged the judge to put a hold on his ruling until the state Supreme Court could review it. The governor's office will file today asking for rapid review by the state Supreme Court. The governor will cite the importance of Brown's emergency restrictions on social gathering due to the loss of life, spread of disease, uh, her attorney says. He also noted that most states in the United States have taken actions similar to that of Governor Brown, saying there's evidence that this is working and that the uh, hardship balance calls at least for the court to uh, stay its order to allow for legal review and in the interest of maintaining the status quo. But the judge denied that request. Ten churches from across the state had asked the court to find that the governor's social distancing order infringed on their religious freedoms. And he went on to say, if we're risking our lives to go to church, or rather the attorney representing those churches, if we're risking our lives to go to church, if we survive, great, as the Salem-based attorney Ray Hack who had filed the motion, if we die, then we're going to heaven. If we want to take that risk, then it's on us. Hack filed a lawsuit earlier this month on behalf of nonprofit group Pacific Justice Institute that takes on religious liberty cases. It represented the 10 churches and 21 individuals. The churches are in Baker, 
Baker City, Bend, Camas, Klamath Falls, Lincoln City, Newburgh, Portland, Roseburg, and Salem. They have so far respected the governor's orders, banning gatherings of more than 25 people and discouraging Oregonians from being around more than 10 people at a time, according to the attorney. But the churches no longer believe such an order is justified, the suit said. Governor Brown's earlier, uh, Brown rather, earlier this month uh, had modified the order, allowing social gatherings of up to 25 people with social distancing for counties with state-approved reopening plans. But the churches said that's not sufficient. If a congregation has 250 members, what are they going to do? Hold 10 services? That's just not realistic, the attorney said. It's an infringement on religious liberty. Now, the governor's office urged the suit be dismissed, arguing that public health is paramount. Well, the executive order issued by the government uh, by the governor uh, are not designed to hinder any specific faith, not designed to impede worship any more than any other activity that, by the mere act of gathering in large numbers, puts lives at risk. At risk, rather, uh, they are designed to keep Oregonians alive and to stop the spread of COVID-19. The uh, governor's attorney argued in the court filing, and they have been working in large and small uh, ways, in large part. Because the governor's executive order, the deaths of o- in Oregon have been tragic but relatively limited. Well, Abrams uh, took issue with uh, the church attorney's quote about parishioners willing to take their own risks. But when behavior endangers others, he argued, it is not just a matter of individual choice and is instead a threat to public health. Well, plaintiffs successfully argue that ORS 443.441 limits declaring public health emergencies to 14 days or up to 28 days maximum. And because COVID-19 is a public health crisis, that limitation is applied. But the governor's attorney argued that Brown declared a state of emergency under a different state law, which is not limited to any particular time period and continues uh, indefinitely. Well, the churches named as plaintiffs in the suit are Elkhorn Baptist Church in Baker City, Calvary Chapel Newburgh, Calvary Chapel Lincoln City, Calvary Chapel Southeast Portland, New Horizon Christian Fellowship in Klamath Falls, Camas Valley Christian Fellowship, People's Church in Salem, Prepare the Way Religion Nonprofit Ministry in Bend, Bend Community Church, Covenant Grace Church in Roseburg, and 21 individuals. Conservative activist uh, Kevin Mannix, former legislator and gubernatorial candidate on behalf of the nonprofit Common Sense Oregon also filed a motion to intervene in support of the church's suit against the governor. In a similar case that was brought in California, the federal judge in that case ruled this month that state and local stay-at-home orders were a valid exercise of emergency police power and didn't violate a church's constitutional rights. The judge in that case noted that the U.S. Supreme Court more than 100 years ago upheld the government's right to exercise police powers to promote public safety during a public health crisis. Now, again, uh, you have the Baker County judge today granting the 10 churches who sued the governor a preliminary injunction. uh, And the governor has now referred that to the U.S. or to the Oregon Supreme Court, asking that they uh, speedily uh, review the case and issue their opinion on it. But at this point, a judge has found that Oregon's uh, governor's coronavirus restrictions on religious gatherings are known and void. The governor is seeking the state Supreme Court to review, and we will certainly continue to follow that story. Uh, Very interesting, because this is a challenge that uh, we're seeing repeated in various places across the country. Uh, Is uh, the church an essential, um, is the church essential, we'll put it that way, and if so, under the accommodations that are outlined by various governor's orders, 
uh, should they not then be allowed to meet? I saw a cartoon on Facebook recently that said you can have up to, and I don't remember what the number was in the um, tool section of Lowe's. So on Sunday morning, our church is going to meet in this tool section at Lowe's because that was considered essential. People could gather there in, in numbers as long as they were socially distanced. Therefore, the church would meet there. So there's a lot of back and forth over whether or not churches were considered non-essential, and that was the crux of the issue, or if there are other contributing issues. And the Supreme Court, I fully expect, will take up the case, and we'll hear from them before the week is out, certainly before Sunday morning services. In the meantime, there were a number of churches who gathered in Salem at the state capitol for worship, socially distanced outside, but exercising the free exercise of religion in bringing the church together. Now, if by the end of the month, I understand if the uh, governor does not include churches in the opening up uh, order, that event will take place in the steps of the state capitol once again. But again, churches are challenging the uh, orders given by uh, governors, not only in Oregon, but in California and elsewhere, and will follow the outcome of what's happening here in the state of Oregon. In just a few moments, we're going to talk with Justin Martin. He is the president of Myatt and Bell PC. They are estate attorneys. They specialize in estate planning. They've been here in the state of Oregon since 1960. They're helping protect families with wills and trusts and estate law. We'll talk with him about how his uh, firm might help you if you and your family are in the process of trying to make some final decisions. And one of the challenging issues is bringing families together. They can help you with that as well. Later in the program, we'll hear a, a classic interview with Rebecca Friedlander. She's the author of Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. That's coming up later in the five o'clock hour. This also happens to be the 40th anniversary of the uh, now-famed eruption of Mount St. Helens. We'll take a look at uh, the events that took place some 40 years ago. I happened to be in Eugene at the University of Oregon at the time, so didn't really experience much of the fallout, if you will. Uh, but we'll take a look back at uh, what happened, those we lost in the process, and what Mount St. Helens looks like today, and what the prospect of another eruption might be tomorrow. All of that coming up as part of today's program. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Once again, Justin Martin, President of Myatt and Bell PC, Estate Attorneys, up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, as you may have noticed, from time to time, we're talking with some of the advertisers here on KPDQ and some of our sister stations to let you know how COVID-19 is impacting their business and the service that they provide our listeners. They support uh, Christian Radio, and we want to support them as well. So I've invited Justin Martin, who's president of Myatt and Bell PC. They are estate attorneys. They specialize in estate planning. They've been around since 1960, and they're helping to protect families. We want to find out how they're faring with this new normal and how we can support one another. Justin Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. Yes, thanks for having us. Well, I am just delighted to have you with us. First of all, let me ask you, how are you doing and how has uh, COVID-19 impacted you, your family, and uh, Myatt and Bell PC? Oh, yes. Well, uh, I, I guess on a personal level, we, we've all been working from home now got two young kids as well so we're we're homeschooling them like like everyone else but yeah it's been overall good we try to have optimistic attitude it, it's uh i guess in, when i've been taking breaks at the coffee now i i go up and i i I'm with my wife and kids now so that's uh that's that's good but um not not necessarily good for business <laughs> um but actually has stayed open and we've just been working from home so 
it's it's been we've been pushed into it definitely but it's been going well when we first started we were doing on the phone now we've been doing mostly video calls with uh with clients being able to just click on a link and and instantly be be able to see us i found when and the attorneys at the firm have found that we're still able to connect with clients on a personal level which i was nervous of it's Still not ideal, but but we've still been able to maintain that personal connection with the video conference. So that's been great. We've just been using the office for signing appointments. So we've been showing up with our masks and we have seating arrangements in the big conference room. So we're six feet apart and we we wipe down everything. And and the big reason we've been using the office is for is for the notaries because the the notaries still need to to notarize in our our, our physical presence of the person that they're notarizing for. Mm-hmm. The other one we've been doing is for the ultra sensitive clients or for the, the the clients that don't feel comfortable coming up to the office. We've been doing a drive up notary where our clients can can drive up to our parking lot and we have an undercover area if it's raining. And we've got the documents on a stool, so they can grab those, sign them, and and put them right back on. And then they just put their driver's license through the car window. So that's been working great as well. Well, that's incredible. And I think what you've just described is an illustration of your commitment to families in our community that's been around for, what, 60 years or, or so uh, in this area. Uh, so, again, this is just an extension of what you all do. Now, let's talk about... Um, uh, how you help protect families with wills and trusts and estate laws. The fact that we're sheltering in place doesn't really change the dynamics of what needs to be done to protect uh, a family and to establish these uh, necessary legal uh, documents and uh, decisions. Talk a little bit about what you all do. Yes, well, we we plan people's uh, estate. Mostly we do it on a class B basis. So when people pass away or become incapacitated, the documents that we draft are the ones that the family is relying on to to know what to do. And so we've really been passionate about transitioning estates in an honoring and, and respectful way because we don't want families to have to be fighting over legal fees or or you know where does that go or yeah. beneficiary or even an incapacity, you know, who, what's child wants to take care of us, right? If we've got two or more kids, then where do we go? Whose house do we go to or what facility and and all of these decisions. So we've been talking more than we ever have historically. And I, I, I like to point out that generationally that, that we can start as a generation to start talk about death and, incapacity in that that's okay so that we can say, you know, I don't want tube feeding or life support if I'm permanently unconscious, or maybe I do. And, and, and we find that talking about these decisions that, that certainly will, will happen um, ahead of time, it makes it okay for the kids to ask us through the years if they have questions. And I think a lot of our experience from going back to 1960 is that otherwise, in the absence of these conversations, we never know. And I think it's it's living not knowing what mom wanted, not knowing what what dad wanted, that that can eat us up. And and with that experience, people are are and we also have better, I think, relationships between the the generations than, than we have. 
obviously as well. And and that's also facilitated these. I, after walking through so many cases with clients, I see that actually having the relationship with an aging parent, it does something to us and, and it, it, it affects how we live and it should. And it's just, it, it's incredible how we come into the world sometimes as helpless as we go out. Why is that? Well, I, I, I think from a eternal perspective, we definitely have answers to that. But as we live, you know, taking care of an aging parent, it, 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 it creates a, a cycle that does affect us how we live. And it also is a great model for our children as well. Oh, the, absolutely. Uh, sacrifices. Absolutely. My mother has lived with my husband and me for 15 years, and we went through that process of decision-making and difficult conversations. And it, it makes for such a healthy family life. Um, and so I appreciate that you help facilitate that for families who don't necessarily know where do we even begin, and it can be somewhat uncomfortable. One of the challenges that a family might face is a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's or the need for long-term disability where medical bills can evaporate very quickly, medical savings rather, can evaporate very quickly. Uh, can you help in that kind of situation, and what advice do you give to uh, listeners who may be facing that challenge? Yes, it's, there's so many different legal ways to to do things and waiting until a diagnosis or, or a surgery that's up and coming, it's not the best time to be reviewing all of those options. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we it often is a trigger. But in our firm, everything we draft, all of the strategies we deploy is geared at at having us look good, meaning we're making a, a smooth transition between those strategies. So you don't have to be worrying about the legal papers. Are they in place or not? So yeah. a great place to start is we, we do provide a courtesy consultation and that way we can specifically tailor each uh, strategy to the clients in front of us from the strategies that you said with the, the Medicaid planning uh, is a big one. There, there are opportunities Ethically, uh, depends on how much money we have, but there's there's a sort of gray area of when we start that. When do we start Medicaid planning if, if that is the strategy? And on the reverse side or the flip side, there's also a state tax planning, so both extremes. And those those uh, courtesy consultations, as we will we'll go through those strategies, come up with a recommendation as a flat rate and say, this is our rate. And that also includes phone calls. So as we actually draft up the plans and then the client sign them, they can call us back up through the years and say, hey, why did I do that again? And that way they're not going to be nickel and dimed through the years when they just have questions. Because we find that in our own clients, if they don't ask those questions through the years, it it tends to cause more stress when those surgeries or, or when we're in game time, when, when we're actually relying on those documents. So yeah. if we can prepare clients ahead of time, it makes it so much more honoring because we can focus on on the loved one that, that we're helping transition through those times rather than stressing about, you know, are the documents in place? You know, what where are they? What What's the plan? That's yeah. not the time to have conversation. But yeah, well absolutely. Now, again, that courtesy consultation, I hope our listeners appreciate how uh, meaningful that is when you're going through this, what ultimately will be a process, that one-time uh, flat fee. And uh, my understanding is Oregon's estate tax is one of the worst in the country, and trying to navigate that on one's own can be overwhelming. 
Yes, it certainly does not get a lot of press, but it only excludes a million dollars of our gross estate, and that includes our retirement assets, our insurance, our fair market value of our house. It includes everything and taxes everything over that. So the strategies that, that we employ, there's so, well, let me say it this way. There's so many different ways to do these strategies. With our firm specializing in estate planning starting in the 90s, you know, since 1960, but in the 90s, we became a pure will and trust firm. Mm-hmm. We have had a team of clients pass away over the decades. And so we have had experience of, of our own documents come into fruition. What is it like in incapacity and death? And, and, and so that experience dealing with the realities of death and incapacity have caused us to do different things in our planning um, strategies because we know what works and what doesn't work. We know what ends up costing more money when people die and causes more stress. And, and what actually transitions more smoothly. So the more time we spend on the planning side, the easier it gets. And so that's why we start with a courtesy consultation so that we can just provide that educational value and say, okay, here's what we recommend. And then we include everything that we find important from a family meeting that we actually initiate that conversation with our trustees, with our, our successors, and, and each of one of those are, 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 are tailored based on the family dynamic. Sometimes we don't include everybody. Most of the time we do, but there's every, every family is different. That way, when the situations arise, we all know what we're going to do. As yeah, opposed yeah. to doing hourly, when if we did it hourly, then the clients are in control of our brand. And what that means is we may be passionate over something because of our experience dealing with the realities when people die and become incapacitated. And if we quoted, okay, I need this, it's going to take two hours, and the client's like, mm, nope, I don't want to do that. I don't want to pay two hours for that. Well, then you fast forward to when that client passes away or becomes incapacitated, and the kids call us up and say, wow, this went horribly. Our only response is, well, yeah, I guess, you know, we recommended not to do it. And, and there was just a, a, a brand that we started to think about is, well, why would we give somebody an option not to? And, and so since the 90s, we've been doing flat rates and we've been including everything that we find important to those transitions from funding our trust to avoid probate to now talking about the plan in, in, in terms of the family meeting. And that starts actually when the kids are in junior high. It depends on when the clients engage us. But certainly the conversations when the family's in junior high is very different than when, when, the, when the, the kids are adults. But, um, but they've just been, been great tools to, to, to have with families. They've, they've been diving boards where it's become okay to talk about death and incapacity within the family unit yeah. rather yeah. than ignoring waiting for those stressful times to come with absolutely zero communication. Well, we're out of time. So let me uh, ask you to give us the courtesy consultation phone number so listeners can give you a ring. Sure. 503-641-6262. 503-641-6262. Well, Justin Martin, I am so grateful to have you be a part of the family and to give our listeners an opportunity to avail themselves of the tremendous service you uh, provide. And I hope you fare well through this season and look forward to, uh, to hearing more from you 
on our stations. Oh, thanks, Georgine. I sure appreciate what you guys do with all the message of hope you pass out each day. Thank you so much. Again, Justin Martin, president of Myatt and Bell PC, their, co- their courtesy consultation, 503-641-6262. It may feel awkward to make that call, but I promise you, once you begin that process, that sigh of relief will be absolutely worth it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the top headlines of the last several days. We'll also give you some updates on what's happening in Oregon with regard to COVID-19 and how well the state did with this weekend being the full reopening of some counties in the state of Oregon. But first, some national headlines. President Trump last Sunday accused CBS 60 Minutes of putting the spotlight on another fake whistleblower who wants to inflict damage on his administration's coronavirus response in order to benefit the radical left Democrats, in quotes. Rick Bright, who has a Ph.D. in virology and ran the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, reiterated earlier claims that the government was uh, slow to respond to the unfolding pandemic and said the administration was instead worried about politics instead of science. He blamed Health and Human Service Secretary Alex Azar of not heeding early warnings about the virus. Bright told the show that there was a January 23rd meeting where he was the only person in the room who said we're going to need vaccines and diagnostics and drugs. It's going to take a while and we need to get started. End quote. Bright told Nora O'Donnell on 60 Minutes, the correspondent, that his resistance to Trump's push of hydroxychloroquine was so what ultimately cost him his position at the agency. He told the House Energy and Commerce Committee last week that the nation could face the darkest winter in modern history if the virus rebounds. The president blasted the 60-minute story as incorrect and labeled Bright as a lying, disgruntled former employee. Uh, 60 Minutes and third-place anchor Nora O'Donnell, the president responded to directly. Well, a vaccine for the novel coronavirus may arrive by the end of the year, but don't bank on it, a top health expert from Johns Hopkins University said on Sunday. We should hold out some level of hope that if everything goes in the right direction, we could possibly be seeing a vaccine by the end of the year. Uh, Given that there are now 110 vaccine projects going on around the world that all the major vaccine companies in the world are working on, this in some way, and uh, given that Tony Fauci and uh, the gentleman who's uh, overlooking the vaccine Uh, White House oversight are now leading figures in the U.S. in this project, and they both believe it's possible. I think it is possible, but everything would uh, have to break in the right way, and there are many ways that it might not work, so I don't think we should bank on it. Essentially a non-essential statement. It may come, it may not. Don't bank on it. I think all of us pretty much knew that at this point. Anyway, Fauci is a leading member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. President Trump chose um, Salau to lead the push to shorten the time needed to produce such a vaccine. While the stay-at-home orders aimed at reducing the spread of coronavirus are now facing legal challenges from residents and state officials alike, alleging that some measures mostly put in place by Democrats go too far while the country gradually moves toward reopening. California alone is facing at least a dozen lawsuits that include claims that the state under Governor uh, Gavin Newsom has unjustly closed down gun shops and religious services, infringed on freedom of speech, and is simply by restricting protests in one case where a resident alleges that being forced to remain at home constitutes forced detention without due process. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is up against a lawsuit from Republicans in her state house and Senate over her extension of an already strict emergency order that has regulated uh, residents' movements and closed businesses. 
it has begun, or should I say, it continues. Well, citizens are rebelling against these orders uh, all across the country. The beaches in Virginia are full, despite Democrat Governor Ralph Northam's order. Even a Democrat sheriff is refusing to enforce lockdowns in that area. North Carolina, church groups there have filed a suit against the state demanding the right to hold in-person services. Meanwhile, Bill de Blasio is threatening to shut down bars because too many people are participating. Again, it continues. The Boston Herald is reporting that Democrats need to remove Adam Schiff. We found out this week that Schiff always knew there was no evidence of collusion. By day, he would interview former Obama administration officials, including Director of National Intelligence James Clapper, Ambassador to the U.N. Samantha Power, National Security Advisor Susan Rice, and Attorney General Loretta Lynch, who would tell him there was nothing. And by night, he'd jump on a telecast, assuring Americans that he'd seen evidence of something. Later, they wrote, Adam Schiff is a vile actor. Democrats must follow their own mantra and put their country over party and eject the snake in their midst. Again, quoting from the Boston Herald. Well, a California state senator has compared lost jobs in that state to lollipops. Regarding AB5, a piece of legislation there, California bill to strip independent contractors of their lifeblood, Senator Hannah Beth Jackson said, I appreciate that some independent contractors are upset. AB5 took away their lollipops. Needless to say, there was an offense taken. Well, a Hong Kong protester has uh, been sentenced to four years in prison. The 21-year-old man was convicted of rioting after word of uh, China harassing a journalist in Hong Kong. Secretary Pompeo stated American journalists in Hong Kong are members of the free press, not propaganda cadres. Any action to interfere with their work and impunge on uh, their right to do their work in Hong Kong uh, would impact our assessment of uh, one country, two systems, and the territory's status. Meanwhile, Elon Musk he's, has tweeted, take the red pill. A lot of people are speculating as to what he might have meant by that. Well, there is a, a matrix connection. Many believe he's talking about becoming Republican. Musk has 34 million Twitter followers. Another story notes that there's not a shred of evidence that Musk buys into the bigoted slants of red pilling revolving around race or gender, but much like... Um, West, he's clearly had it and uh, with the uh, hegemony and uh, nanny state paternalism of Californian culture relative to other states. That's a quote from the Washington Examiner. Kind of a mouthful, too. When CNN's Caitlin Collins thought the cameras were off as the press conference was over, she stood up and quickly removed her mask and it was on camera. The reporter who chastised the president for not wearing a mask was caught taking hers off. Oh, my. We're getting nitpicky these days. On this day in history, 1863, the siege of Vicksburg begins during the Civil War, ending July 4th with a Union victory. 1896, the U.S. Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson endorses separate but equal racial segregation, a concept that would be renounced 58 years later by Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka. 1953, Jacqueline Cochran, 47, becomes the first woman to break the sound barrier as she pilots a, a Canada Air F-86 Sabre jet over Rogers Dry Lake in California. 1967, Tennessee Governor Buford Ellington signs a measure repealing the law against teaching evolution that was used to prosecute John T. Scopes in 1925. 1980, the Mount St. Helens volcano in Washington state explodes, leaving 57 people dead or missing. And in 2018, Hasbro announces that the United States Patent and Trademark Office has issued a trademark for the scent of Play-Doh. There's only one. Well, how did Oregon do in its first full weekend of reopening? 
On Friday, the 31st, the state's 36 counties began to uh, ease stay-at-home restrictions and enter into phase one of the governor's reopening plan. This was the first full weekend those 31 counties reopened. Coastal towns started coming back to life, as did Oregon's wine country. But each business in Oregon's famous uh, destinations is taking things on a bit differently. Uh, One spot in the heart of Cannon Beach, Bruce's Candy Kitchen, opened its doors in 1963, but they shut them when Governor Brown issued the executive stay-at-home order. When spring break didn't happen, that's where we uh, laid off employees. We do whatever we can, Bruce's Candy Kitchen co-owner Brian Taylor said. Unfortunately, we had to close our doors, but luckily have a website presence. Oh, I didn't know that. I get the fudge I love so much. He says that they didn't technically have to close, but chose to when Cannon Beach closed to visitors. The retail business depends on foot traffic, but after Cannon Beach closed to out-of-towners and neighboring coastal cities and counties shut down short-term lodging, there was no foot traffic. We had uh, our storefront closed so no one would um, come into our building, but because uh, just because we have so many products and sanitization and everything like that, and we just didn't uh, want to put anybody at risk, and ourselves, of course, we didn't want to overextend what we could do either. So on Friday, Bruce's opened their doors again when the Clatsop County uh, order was approved, allowing to enter the first phase of reopening, and Cannon Beach rescinded the evacuation of visitors orders well that's just one example there were others as well cannon beach lifting its uh, restrictions seaside city council will decide this week whether to lift their lodging restrictions in popular tourist town southeast and another desirable destination people sipped uh, uh, adult beverages while overlooking the pleasant uh, county there and the beautiful countryside things are uh, spread out so i feel fairly comfortable we'll see how things go says one vineyard club member I'm happy we're starting to slowly loosen up restrictions. It's a beautiful day out, and it certainly was on Saturday. Some Willamette Valley wineries opened their tasting rooms for walk-ins with physical distance uh, between tables and numerous other safety rules. So while uh, distancing was observed in all cases, while new rules were applied for sanitizing uh, spaces where the public might come, it's begun with something of a whimper, but we'll see over the next week's Uh, whether or not Oregonians are heeding what they need to do in order to see the reopening move forward. I think uh, these counties have a few weeks to determine uh, before it can be determined if they can move on to phase two with the threat of moving back away from phase one if we see a surge in COVID-19 cases. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll hear from Rebecca Friedlander, Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. The book is published by Baker. Well, the Dow surged over 900 points amid the coronavirus vaccine progress as lockdowns have been eased as well. Former Reagan chief economist Art Laffer provided some insight into Morgan Stanley's uh, prediction of a V-shaped economic recovery following the virus. U.S. equity markets soared Monday after drug maker Moderna announced progress toward a COVID-19 vaccine and as lockdowns continue to ease nationwide. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained as many as 1,023 points for um, pairing its advance in the final hours of trading. The S&P 500 registered its best day since early April, rising 3.15%, while the Nasdaq Composite climbed 2.44%. Meanwhile, Ronna McDaniel said on Monday that the party, the Republican Party, will not hold a virtual convention, pledging that the presidential nominating convention in late August will be conducted at least uh, party 
uh, partly in person. The coronavirus outbreak forced Democrats to move their convention from July to August, and it's still unclear whether that event will be entirely online. On a call with reporters about election lawsuits, McDaniel initially demurred when asked about the GOP gathering slated for the 24th through the 27th of August in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the party is set to formally choose President Donald Trump as its nominee. Response? Well, it's quite a ways away, and there's ample time for us to adjust if necessary, McDaniel said. But later, in response to a question about the Minnesota Republican Party's online convention possibly being disrupted by hackers, McDonald's said, and then again, McDonald's being the GOP chair, we will not be holding a virtual convention. The RNC has hired a medical advisor for the convention, and McDonald's said the party will need to consult with the Charlotte mayor and North Carolina governor on logistics. So again, the headline, we will not be holding a virtual convention. Well, Saturday was Armed Forces Day, and while it is now come and gone, I think it's worth mentioning that we remain the land of the free because these patriots, American soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen have stood bravely in harm's way and remain on post today. For this, we, the American people, offer our heartfelt thanks and prayers for our nation's warriors and their families. Speaking of patriotism, we have a right to free speech in this country. That That's not always uh, observed in places where you would expect it to be observed most vigorously. So Salem Media Group jumped into the movie business by streaming No Safe Spaces, the documentary about free speech from comedian Adam Carolla and nationally syndicated radio host Dennis Prager. It was uh, 2019's uh, top political documentary. The film exposes the toll of political correctness, particularly on college campuses, but not limited to. And despite the film's popularity, the filmmakers weren't able to strike a deal with the traditional streaming services. Well, the political content did not sit well with them, so they passed on it. Well, the message of the film is how free speech and tolerance is being blocked by intolerant forces who say they believe in free speech, except when it comes to someone they disagree with. So I'd like to encourage you to check it out. No Safe Spaces is now available to watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com for $19.95. But for KPDQ listeners, use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off. That's nosafespaces.com. Well, on the morning of May 18, 1980, an earthquake shook Mount St. Helens and the mountain's north face collapsed in one of the largest debris avalanches ever recorded. Well, the slide uncorked the volcano, uh, bearing uh, magna that exploded with 500 times the force of the Hiroshima bomb and the most destructive eruption in U.S. history. And we lived not that far from it. Those of us here in the Pacific Northwest, in the Portland metro area, and southwest Washington. The cataclysmic chain of events killed 57 people, thousands of animals, took out 250 homes, 47 bridges, 185 miles of highway, clogged rivers with sediment, flooded valleys, and blocked the Columbia River shipping channel. Forty years later, the destruction may not be over, we're being told. The landslide remade Spirit Lake, once a beloved recreation spot at the volcano's base, I don't know why I'm saying volcano, because I've always ever said volcano, so forgive me. Anyway, um, the uh, only relief valve for the three-square-mile lake is a 1.6-mile drainage tunnel hurriedly built in 1985 and deformed repeatedly by faults and uh, they call it subsistence. Well, a breach is not thought to be imminent, but if it occurs, the results would be disastrous. Now, this is a big if, but we're talking about 73 billion gallons of water. 
Again, the landslide remade Spirit Lake, one of the recreation areas that was very popular uh, pre-eruption, raising the lake bed by 200 feet, dumping debris that functioned as a huge dam, holding back that 73 billion gallons of water. Well, Chris um, Straybig, who's uh, Spirit Lake project manager for the Forest Service, said a massive surge of water, mud and debris could inundate cities below and disable four Columbia River ports, Longview, Vancouver and Kalama in Washington and the Port of Portland in Oregon. We're doing everything we can to make sure that never happens, he says. It would be somewhat of a repeat of the 1980 mudslide that went downstream. Well, the Forest Service proposes to drill into the debris to assess how much lake water the natural dam can safely restrain and how it might perform when the massive and long-predicted Cascadia earthquake finally strikes. A deteriorating uh, cast iron uh, gate uh, at the tunnel entrance would be replaced with a safer double barrier. Well, none of that is especially controversial given the potential catastrophe. A conflict, however, is um, coming to a head over another issue, how to bring workers and equipment into remote sections of the Mount St. Helens National Volcanic uh, Monument. The Forest Service wants to build a temporary three-and-a-half-mile road across the uh, Pumice Plain, an area that was... uh, was scoured by the landscape and erupted in uh, and the eruption in 1980, but has since experienced a remarkable regeneration of plants and animals. Researchers who study that area, they've argued that helicopters could be used to ferry workers and equipment in order to preserve the fragile ecosystem. The scientists describe the plane as a unique blank slate where you have watched nature recolonize. And it's a rare opportunity that we have had the opportunity to enjoy and certainly for them to study. But it was 40 years ago today when it all happened. Well, the rigidity of our food system is leading to trashed crops, smashing eggs, dumping milk. Farms are wasting more food than ever before. Well, the impact on food, secu- food security rather, could be devastating for millions. Food waste is taking on a new meaning in this pandemic area. Dumping milk in Wisconsin, smashing eggs in Nigeria, rotting grapes in India, buried hogs in Minnesota. These are disturbing images and they've stirred outrage around the world. But there's a surprising part. The world may not actually be wasting more than normal when a third of the global food production ends up in landfills. What's changing now is that rather than being thrown out by consumers as kitchen waste, an unprecedented amount of food is getting dumped even before making it into the grocery stores. You can blame the broken supply chains. Across the globe, production is handled through what's known as just-in-time methods. Output from farms can be shuttered into stores and restaurants within just a few days, and the next batch of crops and livestock is ready to take its place immediately following. When those chains face challenges, as has been the case with trucking, ports, labor crunches, restaurant shutdowns, slowed trade, there's a huge backlog of supply that never makes it to the stores. That will likely have devastating consequences on food security, we're being told. Prices could end up rising further as millions are already suffering financially from COVID-19, the fallout. Well, people who can barely afford to feed themselves now could face even more problems. That's a co-editor of the American Journal of Agricultural Economics. 
What worries me is human welfare. Before the pandemic, an estimated $1 trillion of food production ended up lost or wasted. The great bulk of that came from trash at home, about 40% of U.S. Uh, uh, in the U.S. Now, as people deal with fewer trips to the store and concerns over prices, dumping from the kitchen is uh, expected to tumble, countering other losses. Some analysts say uh, total waste could still potentially be higher this year, but close to a dozen interviews show that no one was ready to take a firm stand on that. We don't know whether it's going to be uh, more or less food waste in total this year, but food waste is a reality for those who are producing it and can't get it to where it needs to go. Something to add to your prayer list for those who are making decisions about uh, what can and cannot be done uh, in terms of the sheltering in place, shuttering of businesses, and so on. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. Um, We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. And then later in the the, uh, second hour of today's program, we'll share a classic interview with Rebecca Friedlander, Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Hey, coming up in our next couple of segments, we'll talk with uh, Rebecca Friedlander. She's the author of Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. She'll join us uh, for that. And uh, we'll also take a look, for those of you who joined us in the second hour, uh, at a decision made by a judge um, today regarding churches and whether or not the uh, governor's order is constitutional. We'll bring you up to date on all of that. Well, the Churches Helping Churches Challenge announced today that its May 15th benefit simulcast, that was last Friday, hosted by Pulse, drew 258,000 viewers and raised $153,187 from its donors. The initiative also announced that it will uh, transition at the end of the month from a national campaign to empowering local ministries to support at-risk churches as the ramifications of COVID-19 will be felt for months to come. Well, the uh, event on Friday, Benefit to Simulcast, was also sponsored by Right Now Media and included musical artists Lauren Daigle, Lecrae for King and Country, Kirk Franklin, Toby Mac, among others. The uh, simulcast also featured sports star like stars rather like Supreme Court champion Benjamin Watson, Major League Baseball World Series champion uh, Adam Wainwright, NFL players Sam Ako and Lorenzo Alexander, sports analyst Chris uh, Broussard, as well as Christian leaders Christine Gain. Kane, rather, Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, Jim Daly, and filmmaker Andy Irwin. It was quite an event. Well, the Churches Helping Churches Challenge was launched by and uh, the AND campaign and other Christian organizations back in April to urge larger, more stable churches to assist at-risk churches in their own communities. Well, the effort also created the COVID-19 Church Relief Fund to award $3,000 grants to assist congregations in need. Now, to date, the relief fund has raised about $649,000 from individuals and ministries, with 100% of all the funds donated going directly to churches. The the relief fund has already given $3,000 grants to 121 churches, and that will continue. Now, because the money was raised in May, an additional 95 churches will receive grants throughout this month. The relief fund will distribute the remainder of its funds to churches, and the work will continue through ministries like Movement Day, City Gospel Movements, American Bible Society, and others in cities across America. Says Justin uh, Giboni, president of the AND campaign, 
Uh, we have seen this uh, that low-income Americans, especially in urban centers, have been more likely to lose their job during this coronavirus economic shutdown. This has greatly impacted the small churches in these communities, and many of them could be forced to close. Uh, when we first thought of this initiative, we could uh, never have imagined that this much money could be raised to help so many churches. It's amazing to watch, and I look forward to seeing this challenge continue with more affluent ministries across the United States seeking to serve at-risk churches. Uh, it's been uh, great to see so many brothers and sisters in Christ come together to bear each other's burdens and be the church. That's a quote from former NFL star Benjamin Watson. He says, I want to thank the hundreds of donors who stepped up to support smaller at-risk churches. And now we want to urge Christians to keep this spirit of reconciliation going. As the impact of the pandemic will be felt for months, it's important that Christians and other churches look for ways to support uh, congregations that are hurting in their cities. Says um, Nick Hall, founder of Pulse and visionary for Together 2020, he writes that we are thrilled that over 250,000 people tuned in for the Together Churches Helping Churches simulcast with over $150,000 being given. It's pretty impressive. Uh, while there are many examples of divisions among us, the church can tell a different story because Jesus is our example and leader. He prayed that we might be one in John 17 and calls us to love not only our neighbor, but even our enemy. We believe that what is hurting world, uh, this hurting world needs most is a united gospel-proclaiming church, end quote. Well, the challenge was uh, launched in part out of the spirit of gospel-focused uh, racial reconciliation, as most of the churches at risk of closing are minority and immigrant congregations in urban communities that have been hit hard by the coronavirus economic shutdown. Altogether, 1,325 churches have applied for the assistance from the COVID-19 Church Relief Fund. The fund, which was administered by the National Christian Foundation, will accept donations and distribute funds through the end of this month. And churches that have applied but haven't received a grant will be referred to large churches and ministries across the country in their same cities. Larger ministries and churches that want to know about at-risk churches that have applied in their communities can contract uh, contract rather churchrelief.org or uh, can email the AND campaign, but kind of a cool way of the church uh, supporting uh, itself in its various iterations across the country. Well, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's new unity government was sworn in on Sunday, cementing a fragile political alliance with former rival Benny Gantz to end more than a year of political stalemate in the country. Mr. Netanyahu and Gantz now face the challenge of keeping together a government run by two factions with opposing views on several key issues, from annexing parts of the Israel-occupied West Bank to preserving the judiciary power so they can look to the United States on how to survive a divided government. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu controls the right-wing block of the government, while Mr. Gantz uh, leads the center-left. The pair last month agreed to, on an intricate coalition agreement after three inconclusive elections in one year. Now, can you even imagine to try to preserve a political marriage built with little trust? Well, the power-sharing deal calls for Mr. Netanyahu to be prime minister for the first 18 months, while Mr. Gantz is uh, alternative um, prime minister and defense minister. The two will then reverse roles. Now, the public wants a unity government, and this is what the public is receiving today, Netanyahu said at the start of the proceedings on Sunday. Well, the new administration faces a raft of tests, including passing a budget and enacting measures to counter the economic downturn caused by COVID-19. 
It will also have to figure out how and whether to advance Mr. Netanyahu's promises to annex parts of the occupied West Bank, a move that faces opposition from Palestinians, Europeans, and the Arab states. The incumbent's Likud party has pushed for judicial reforms, while Mr. Gans' Blue and White party says that it wants to protect the court's independence. Well, adding to the challenges, the government will operate under the shadow of Mr. Netanyahu's corruption trial that's set to begin on the 24th of this month. He denies wrongdoing and has criticized the courts and police of overreach. Well, the swearing-in with 73 lawmakers for and 46 against the 120-member Knesset, was itself delayed until Sunday so that Mr. Netanyahu could quell a small rebellion within Likud after several senior members were dissatisfied with their ministerial post. The government includes some 73 uh, lawmakers, including from blue and white Likud, two ultra-Orthodox parties and several smaller parties. There will be a record of 36 ministers' appointment appointments uh, used to forge this alliance. Fragile ground indeed. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, God TV is in a spat that exposes the tension between Israel and evangelicals in the country. Well, an evangelical broadcaster who boasted of miraculously securing a TV license in the country now risks being taken off the air over suspicions of trying to convert Jews to Christianity. Well, the controversy over God TV, as it's called, is put both Israel and its evangelical Christian supporters in an awkward position, exposing tensions the two sides have long papered over. Evangelical Christians there, particularly in the United States, are among the strongest supporters of Israel, viewing it as the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, with some seeing it as the harbinger of a second coming of Jesus Christ and the end days. Well, Israel has long welcomed evangelicals' political and financial support, especially as their influence over the White House has risen during the current administration, and it has largely shrugged off concerns about any hidden religious agenda. But most Jews view any effort to convert them to Christianity as deeply offensive, a legacy of centuries of persecution and forced conversions at the hands of uh, Christian rulers. In part because of those sensitivities, evangelical Christians, who generally believe salvation can only come through Jesus Christ, and preach the gospel worldwide to rarely target Jews. But that may have changed with God TV. In a video message that's since been taken down, God TV CEO Ward Simpson suggested its real aim was to convince Jews to accept Jesus as their Messiah. The channel known as uh, Shalanu uh, broadcast in e- uh, Hebrew, even though uh, most Christians in the Holy Land speak Arabic. God uh, also supernaturally opened the door for us to take the gospel of Jesus into the homes and lives and hearts of his Jewish people, Simpson said in that video. Uh, They'll watch secretly. They'll watch quietly. God is restoring his people. God is removing the blindness from their eyes, end quote. Well, in a subsequent video, he acknowledged that the channel was under investigation by Israeli authorities, saying that preaching about Jesus in Israel is a very touchy subject. He apologized for any offensive offensive remarks and said God TV would comply with all regulations. What those regulations uh, permit and um, refuse is not altogether clear at this uh, point. The communications ministry said it was investigating a discrepancy between the application for the license that was granted in March, which said the channel was focused on the Christian community and its actual content, which appears uh, to target Jews and convince them that Jesus is Messiah. HOT, or H-O-T, said in a statement that it was not responsible for the channel's content and has been fully transparent with authorities. So this back and forth, um, I don't know what expectation there might have been, uh, but this was seen, at least by the CEO of the company, as a God-given opportunity to preach the gospel freely in hopes that those living in the country 
who were not followers of Jesus would become followers, so it shouldn't be altogether surprising. However, it appears that was there was some kind of a contract that said otherwise. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll continue to follow that story as tensions continue. Up next, we're going to hear from Rebecca Friedlander, Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. My next guest writes in the introduction to her book, What Would It Look Like to Pack Your Bags and Travel the World in Search of True Beauty? If you wanted to document authentic beauty, would you capture fashion models on runways, nature's finest mountaintops, a mother's arms, or intriguing corners of the globe that most people ignore? She did it. She did it all in a nine-month adventure from Paris to Los Angeles, styling makeovers and photo shoots with fascinating women who shared powerful discoveries about passion, faith, and beauty. She found that many lies women mistakenly believe about their identity are often similar regardless of their background or nationality, and that each radiant truth also has a common theme. Her book is a personal ticket to adventure and a daring quest to discover your identity as a woman of God. So... She takes us on her travels, and we travel together. I'm referring to the book, Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. She tells the story of 12 women, and they are fascinating. It's so creatively and beautifully done. Uh, just hearing the stories um, is is an, an adventure, but finding the depth in those stories is also uh, wonderful. Well, Rebecca Friedlander has been a full in full time ministry for seventeen years, ministering both locally and internationally using creative arts and music. As a worship leader, she has copyright copyrighted more than three hundred songs and released thirteen CDs. As a film producer and award winning photographer, her productions include Seeds TV, Girl Perfect, Pioneers, a Southeast Alaskan Odyssey and many, many others. Her newest production, Radical Makeovers, is a TV series about beauty, featuring makeovers and testimonies of 40 women around the world who have overcome image-related issues. She's the author of eight books. Rebecca lives in San Diego, California, but today she joins us by phone to talk about her beautiful book, Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. Rebecca Friedlander, thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, this is such an unusual approach to the subject of beauty, and you have had access to women around the world that most of us will never have, and yet somehow there is a thread that runs through each of their stories that that feels and sounds very familiar that I think um, most women, if not all of us, will be able to relate to. Tell us a bit of the background, the television program that really sparked um, this book. Yes. So I'm a freelance filmmaker, and I just had a passion to really go deep in some different issues. One of those um, that was on my heart was with inner beauty, but not just inner beauty. Beauty is a whole for women. Um, I was shooting a film called Girl Perfect, which was about a runway model and her testimony, and I was in Europe, and just walking the streets, asking people, what is your definition of the word beautiful? Just doing some street interviews. It was amazing to me how many people said, we don't really know. Um, hmm. and, and then coming back to the States and saying, okay, what is your definition of beauty? I went to Los Angeles and, and went to some of the, the beautiful beaches and just asked people this question. And, and a lot of people said, oh, it's being comfortable in your own skin or having confidence. But then you ask them, do you think our culture today is doing a good job of defining beauty for women? And across the board, the answer was no. Hmm. And so it made me think, okay, here's something that 
are we need to we can step into um, as believers and really provide some answers to a culture who knows there's something wrong with how we're defining beauty today, but they don't really know what that looks like. Yeah. Now, one tends to think that in our culture, that is very superficial. That beauty is understood as uh, physical beauty, attributes that you either have or you don't have. You can enhance in certain ways, and we follow uh, people who seem to have it together. We try to follow their example. Is that kind of a definition or that understanding of beauty, you either have it or you don't, based on your physical attributes or, for that matter, your history, is that unique to the United States, or did you find that that was fairly common in other places as well? I think every culture has its own definition of beauty. Um, and I would say it's a twofold response to that. First of all, of course, so many people still pick up the magazines, you know, the beauty industry and the cosmetic industry and the fashion industry is huge everywhere, um, especially in the Western world. But it, I also did some, some other questions as I was talking to women on the street, and I said, who is the most beautiful person you know? And across the board, the answer was my mother. Hmm. And so I think, again, there's this twofold thing going on right now in our culture where we're hungry for something deeper. We recognize that beauty is fleeting, but we're not quite sure what that looks like. We know what it feels like, and it's it's love. But but what does that look like in our world, and how how can we paint that in a deeper way? Now, in your quest to... Um, discover and to define, to find, if you will, beautiful. Um, what was your goal in singling out these 12 women that make up the book and helping us to understand, hear and understand their stories and then to reveal them not only as physically beautiful, but exposing the beauty within that makes them even more attractive? I really wanted to go for women who had a transformation experience had an internal makeover, if you will, mm-hmm. to where I could do a before and after story and take do a makeover with them, show pictures of their before and after makeover that tied in with their story, and have some radical black and white change. And so uh, some of these women, you know, they had grown up in Christian homes. Some of them had not. Um, but what happened is that when they really encountered Jesus, like really encountered him in a deep way, it not only helped them understand their identity, but it changed their definition of beauty. Now tell our listeners some of the places you went to find these stories, because I think that's fascinating in and of itself. <laughs> it is, yeah. It was just a fun adventure. I didn't have it all planned out. I didn't know it was going to take nine months. I just kind of said yes to God's tug in my heart to do this adventure. And so uh, Paris, France, Hawaii, um, Ireland, um, the United Kingdom, England, uh, just really, really went around um, to some to some place. Also, Israel and the Middle East interviewed some amazing women out there. And in total, there was 50 women that I interviewed, and then we chose 12 of them for this book. And you chose the 12 because each of them had a transformational story. Each one of them are just amazing women. I mean, we have yes. one one young woman from the Middle East, and her, her great-grandparents were in the Holocaust. And her, her grandmother <clears throat> was hidden as a child for five years in a basement and never saw a mirror. And so when she saw herself, she immediately thought, wait a minute, I'm not blonde-haired and blue-eyed? And so she had this incredible insecurity. And then fast forward three generations, her her granddaughter 
is having all these struggles with securities and locks herself in the basement for a year as a teenager. And so we really see just some of these amazing stories and then how she broke broke free from that. Her chapter is called Beautiful Warrior and how we can overcome some of the fears and insecurities um, that may be passed down to us. So every one of them just had this amazing story. And then there were truths that we can apply and embrace to our lives as well. Every chapter has questions that we can ask ourselves and put ourselves in this place of, wow, how can I make this personal? Um, What is the takeaway for me? One of the things I appreciate about the book is the images of the women whose stories are being told appear in the book. There's the first image um, that is uh, a fairly plain image. And some of them, either holding a sign, there's something written on them. Uh, the one I'm looking at in um, uh, in Beautiful uh, Security, Despised and Rejected, is written on her yeah. forearms as her story is being told. The pictures as the story is told and you come to the conclusion change rather dramatically. Um, as you learned of their stories and learned of the dramatic uh, transformation that they experienced in discovering that they themselves possessed beauty, um, you did, you know, hair and makeup and makeovers, but did you sense a transformation that even defied the superficial um, uh, improvement of their appearance? I did. And, And what was beautiful is that just in connecting with these women, there were several specific times where I really got them got to see them display the character that they were talking about, that they had stepped into. So, for instance, the chapter you're talking about, Beautiful Security, I was in Paris, France, interviewing this girl, and (laughs) as soon as I got to Paris, uh, we were chatting, and there was a break-in that happened where somebody actually smashed the door. It's a really funny story. (laughs) And, And broke into the house, and I got to watch this young woman step in, and totally take leadership of the situation and connect with the police and just and just step in. And the story is she was bullied as a child. She was terrified of people. But right there on the spot, I get to watch her demonstrate courage and demonstrate taking leadership from being in that place of safety and peace with the Lord. We're talking about the book, Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. Rebecca Friedlander is my guest. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation and give you an opportunity to hear some of the stories that are featured in the book. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking about the book, Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World, as my guest, Rebecca Friedlander, uh, did. Now, having asked the question to so many, what does beauty mean to you? Yes, I love that question because it really causes us to go a little bit deeper than just the surface. Obviously, Mm -hmm. our culture would say, it's the magazine, it's the outside beauty, or it's even confidence in yourself that causes you just to be comfortable in your own skin. But reality is that we're all we're all wilting you know mm-hmm. <laughs> all um our our outside beauty and even our inner confidence is not always as best as it could be but true beauty is to find out who your creator says you are and to tap into that place and then out of that love and out of that peace you can really display beauty for the rest of the world now, it's a, a difficult question because every one of the stories in your book, Finding Beautiful, is in and of itself a beautiful story. It's inspiring and it challenges us to rethink how we look at ourselves in light of what beauty is. Is there a favorite or uh, is there a story that is especially moving to you? 
I love all those stories. I yes. adopt every one of the women. They're all in my heart. If you've been on my show, you're on my heart or in my book. Um, there's there's two that come to mind. One of them is Lauren. She lives in central California, way up in the mountains of a ski resort town. And her chapter is called Beautiful Adventure. And not only did we capture her story as how she was uh, a young woman who traveled around the world by herself, just being available to God and has all these amazing stories. But then we also went on an adventure to find a hot spring in the middle of the mountains. And we had no path, but just a general direction of where we were going. And just this moment of having to trust God when you don't know where you are, but you know where you're supposed to be, was just this beautiful moment of, you know what, this is part of beauty, is going, God, I don't even know what this looks like sometimes, but I know you got this. And I know you have my final destination. So that was just a really, a really fun moment. Another one um, was Oriel, who is a young woman in the Middle East. And we went into the streets of Jerusalem and filmed her story and shot these photos that were just epic and, and talked about life as an immigrant and what it was like for her as a young child to move from the United States to the Middle East and how that transition really affected her, her identity for many years. Yeah, it's so interesting to um, to see the first picture that you take. And in the case of uh, Lauren that you mentioned a moment ago, she's pictured mm-hmm. holding a sign that says boxed in. And yet this is a woman who travels, <laughs> travels the world and sometimes isn't entirely certain where she's going, which in and of itself is such a transformation from where she began. Mm-hmm. This woman who had such promise and yet felt boxed in. I think we limit ourselves just like we limit our definition of beauty. But God steps in, <laughs> and it really is sometimes just a matter of obedience to get us out of the box and help us step into that transition. And on the other side, we're carrying all of this this treasure, um, and, and it's a real encouragement for other people to step out as well. Mm. Now, did you identify with uh, some of the women who were featured in your book, Finding Beautiful? I did. There's one story in particular, uh, Catherine, who's a singer-songwriter, and she talks about growing up in a Christian home where um, they didn't really cultivate the idea of, of being beautiful or embracing that, and so she just kind of shelved the whole idea of looking physically beautiful and turned to creativity to express herself. Um, but, but it kind of became this guise for, well, I could never really achieve, so I won't even try. And I think that was, in some ways, the way that I grew up when it came to beauty. I was in a very conservative home, so we really didn't even talk about physical beauty in any kind of healthy way. And it wasn't until later in my relationship with the Lord where I was like, you know what, it is okay to explore our our beauty as women because that's part of how God made us. That's part of being human. But then how do we do that in a way that really honors Him Mm -hmm. and we can have fun with it? So I think... That was kind of a journey that sort of reflected um, my walk as well, of going, wow, what is beauty, and how do we embrace this in a, in a way that pleases the Lord? Mm. Now, you uh, make the point that our faith can suffer when women in particular don't recognize and cherish our own beauty and that of others. Explain how that is the case and why it's important for us um, to recognize ours and others' beauty. Well, if you think of the creator of the universe, he made peacocks. 
Mm-hmm. He made butterflies. He made all of these beautiful things. So for us to somehow go, oh, he's not interested in beauty. Wow, that limits his his artistic skill in our lives, doesn't it? And so I think it's just a matter of just coming to him and say, God, redefine this place. And for some people, what's beautiful is different than than other people. You know, like humor is incredibly beautiful, a good sense of humor, kindness, um, gentleness. You know, there's a whole lot of things that are listed in the Word of God, but that we can just kind of push aside to go, well, you know, maybe I don't fit that stereotype of, quote, biblical beauty. But then to go, well, God, what did, what did you see when you put beauty in my heart? How, how do you want me to embrace that? Mm-hmm. And how do we find that out? You know, it struck me, um, I have the book in front of me, I've seen the pictures, that even if you hadn't included them, you're a freelance filmmaker, you're a beautiful photographer, and these images are incredible in and of themselves, but if you hadn't included the physical pictures, and by the way, I'm glad you did, I think the beauty in each one of these women would still have been made um, evident because of their stories, how they're told, and what they... Um, what they experienced at the end of the story as they matured in their understanding of uh, beauty and recognized it in themselves through sometimes very difficult circumstances. Absolutely. And we didn't want to skirt the idea of, of brokenness and how God brings beauty for ashes because he is so not limited. <laughs> you know, all we have to do is, is give him our best. And he goes, oh, let me see that. We have one young woman who um, had told her story of growing up in a very dysfunctional religious family uh, that caused her to turn away from the Lord and uh, make some choices um, in regards to her own life. And she ended up aborting her child at the age of 16 and how that just devastated her for years until she walked through healing. God just brought her this amazing place of healing and redemption, and even since the book has been published, it's in the last couple of months, she has been married to a man who has four children, mm. and it's just so exciting. So it's this continuing story of redemption. It's all about him and about how he puts beauty in our lives. Yeah, yeah. Now, the women in your book struggle with similar feelings of inadequacy and self-doubt and shame. Uh, it, it isn't just um, the absence, the lack of beauty that we perceive in ourselves. These are universal struggles for many women. How does Scripture equip us to banish these feelings that so often prevent us from moving into uh, our, our full uh, purpose that God has for us? Yeah, two things. I think Scripture gives us a mindset of belonging to a Father who loves us already. So we don't have to try to achieve or to rack up a number, a number, enough points if you will, in order to earn the love that we crave and that sense of belonging, because we can find that now. The other thing I think that Scripture does is it brings us tools that equip us that when we hear those lies coming against us, we can say, no, 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 this is what my Father says. And just like Jesus, when he was being tempted by the enemy, we can use the Word to fight back. And so I don't think Scripture just immediately solves all our problems. I think we have to use it. Mm-hmm. And it's those two things, developing that mindset and also picking up those tools, just like Jesus did. Yeah. How do you see your work as a filmmaker give you uh, unique insight into um, beauty, and particularly beauty in women? I think I'm a storyteller at heart. And so when you're capturing somebody's story on film, first of all, it's all live action. So you don't miss anything. You can watch 
how a woman is communicating. Um, I've gotten cheered up behind the camera, you know, just uh, kind of just hearing their stories or just start like smiling and laughing, just moved by the emotion. And I think that that shows up um, within a film, which is part of the, the beauty uh, of that process. You really can kind of capture things um, in, in a way than you can more than if you're just sitting there with a pen or behind the computer. Yeah. Now, I love the book. You feature 12 stories. The television program that you produced uh, features many more. Is that still uh, available for people to find and watch? Absolutely. So Radical Makeovers can be found um, on television. Pure Flix um, has just released the Radical Makeovers season two. Uh, so that's available as well. Pure Flix. Is that a subscription channel? It is. So Pure Flix is a um, a video on demand channel and it's safe based. So, a lot of amazing entertainment. And they are awesome. Pure yeah. Flix is just great. Yeah, you can make a selection and not regret it later because something popped up that you did not expect. <laughs> well, um, Absolutely. Rebecca, thank you so much for this beautiful book um, and uh, for sharing the stories in it with us. Let me ask you what you hope your readers, when they've uh, read the final chapter and they close the book, what do you hope they carry away in their heart? I would love for them to feel accepted, um, even with their flaws, to know that they're okay right where they are. And then also just to know they can run into the arms of their father and receive his truth, um, that it's a good truth. Yeah. And that, that they can tap into that place of beauty, that place of safety and confidence that can only be found in him. And then from that, we just start radiating. So that's, that's, that's my hope, is just to be a tool that comes alongside their journey. We also have a lot of moms that are picking up the book and reading it with their daughters and saying, you know what, this explains everything that I want you to know as you're growing up. And um, I love that as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. The book is titled Finding Beautiful, Discovering Authentic Beauty Around the World. Rebecca Friedlander is the author, and her program, A Radical Makeover, can be seen on Pure Flicks. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I know, sadly, the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. There's a new poll that's been taken that says that more than 60% of American believers of all faiths, that's denominations, feel that the novel coronavirus pandemic is a sign that God is telling humanity to change how it's living, according to a new study. Now, God has been extending that message for quite some time. Sometimes it's heated, sometimes not. But this being a unique way that God is using this set of circumstances to call people to himself. Now, that shouldn't be surprising since God has been about that by virtue of his people uh, and the Holy Spirit and his word for, well, millennia. 31% of Americans who believe in God feel strongly that the virus is a sign of God telling humanity to change. Now, the wording there is a little bit troubling, a sign of God telling humanity. The suggestion that God sent the virus, is that what they're suggesting? Or that because there's sin in the world and even creation is crying out for the revealing of the sons of God, is it a matter of this expression of the fallen human nature that we all uh, share in common, that God is using this situation for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, this study says it's by the University of Chicago Divinity School and the Associated Press Nork Center for Public Affairs Research that um, most U.S. believers say God is telling them, hey, we need to straighten up. Well, the nationwide survey conducted in April and early May found that evangelical Protestants are more likely than others to believe that strongly 
African-Americans, regardless of education, income or gender, are more likely than those of other racial backgrounds to say they feel COVID-19 is a sign that God wants humanity to change. Of course, the biggest sign is Jesus on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection. Uh, 47% of African-Americans say they feel that strongly compared to 37% of Latinos, 27% of Caucasians, and so on. White evangelical Christians at 67% are more likely than other American believers to feel that God will protect them from being infected. White evangelical Christians at 7% are less likely than others, 15% to to doubt God's existence or feel God has abandoned humanity because of COVID-19. Now, it's always interesting when there's a survey. It gives us an opportunity to gain a glimpse into how people are interpreting events. And insofar as it gives us an opportunity to clarify what God's word actually says, um, to make the point that God is always seeking to save that which was lost, um, to point them to his word, uh, it's a tremendous opportunity that we have not to exploit, I wouldn't use that word, but to seize this opportunity and every other opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of hope and reconciliation and restoration, and that what happens in this life is not the end of the story. So while I find this uh, headline very interesting, um, it just tells me that we as followers of Jesus um, need to take this seriously and to pursue opportunities when people are expressing their uncertainty, their questions, and so on. There are more than 1.4 million confirmed cases of coronavirus in the United States. uh, 89,564 deaths as early as uh, Monday, according to Johns Hopkins University's Coronavirus Resource Center. People's uh, attention is focused on what this means, what's next, what does this mean for my life and my future, and what a great opportunity to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. By the way, you can learn more about this um, particular uh, survey at um, Christian Post in their online paper. Later this week, we have a radiothon with food for the poor. Now, it's a challenging season to hold a radiothon, but as we are struggling with the COVID-19 and coronavirus here in this country, there are those who have far fewer resources whose challenges are greater than our own. And we're going to bring many of those to your attention. That's on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. So I wanted to give you a heads up for that. I want to thank James Blend for engineering today's program and producing Clark Hilton for doing the same and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us tomorrow. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.